Welcome to Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All, the Well Mama edition. Join us for this limited series where we have conversations with a variety of experts and community leaders in the field of maternal and child health to discuss how to advance maternal health equity in Illinois. Hi, my name is Rabia Dahdua, a clinical research associate with the Center for Health Equity Transformation. Joining me today is Catherine Schubert, Katie, um, who is president and CEO of the Society for Women's Health Research, SWHR, where she leads the organization's efforts to promote research on sex as a biological variable and improve women's health through science, policy, and education. Prior to joining SWHR in April 2020, Katie served as chief advocacy officer at the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, SMFM, where she oversaw the organization's advocacy and communications activities. Prior to joining SMFM, she was a senior vice president at CRD Associates. Her clients included patient advocacy organizations, physician organizations, and coalitions, helping them achieve their public policy and communications goals through focused government relations strategy targeted at Congress and federal agencies. Her areas of expertise include Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement and quality, women's and children's health, and public health. Katie previously served in key staff roles for U.S. Representative Nancy Johnson, Republican of Connecticut, and Wayne Goldcrest, Republican of Maryland, and brings a unique perspective of working across party lines to achieve policy goals. She currently serves as chair of the board of Maternal Mental Health Leadership Alliance and as an advisor to the John E. Louis Fund for Children's Health. She's a past president of Women in Government Relations, the premier professional association for women in the government relations profession. She holds a Master of Public Policy degree with a concentration in health policy from the George Washington University and attended Mary Washington College in Fredericksburg, Virginia, where she earned a BA in political science. She lives in Virginia with her husband, three children, and dog George. Welcome to the Skin Trees podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we got George in there. (laughs) I know. (laughs) What kind of dog is George? He is a terrier mix. He joined our family pre-COVID and we just love him. Again, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, the topic today, we're going to discuss um, gender dynamics on perinatal and postpartum health um, in our in this episode of our limited series on maternal health. So because um, this podcast is focused on binary gender dynamics on perinatal health, can you first start with a, a brief overview on the concept of gender for our listeners? Sure. So I think that there is often, um, there's often confusion between the use of the word sex and gender. And so I want to start with what we at SWHR um, use in terms of definition. So sex refers to a set of biological attributes in humans and animals, while gender is a social construct. And that refers to either roles or behaviors or expressions and identities of girls, women, boys, men, and gender diverse people. And so gender can be a spectrum. Um, It is a sense of identity, um, whereas biological sex differences in disease, and particularly when it comes to perinatal and and postpartum health, we think traditionally of, of females in this case. Um, that does have an impact on health, regardless of your gender identity. Um, And so I think for perinatal health, you know, people who have a uterus um, can become pregnant. And so when we think about this concept of gender, it doesn't necessarily just mean men versus women. 
um, it really does sort of run the spectrum of binary, cisgender, non-binary, um, trans men who who may be wanting to start a family and have the ability to have a baby. Um, it really is uh, the full spectrum in terms of, of identity. Great. Thank you so much for providing that overview. Um, and so how does this gender identity affect prenatal and postpartum care? Yeah, traditional gender roles have evolved over hundreds and thousands of years. Um, and even traditional women's health issue issues, it, it doesn't necessarily refer to things that someone who is born female or assigned female at birth may experience. Um, for instance, um, oftentimes women take on the role of caregivers in their family, and that is not due to their biological sex. That is due to social constructs often and, and gender identity potentially. Um, and so when we think about prenatal and postpartum care, it has been framed traditionally from a woman's health perspective and from a traditional binary cisgendered perspective. So a person who maybe does not identify as a woman or is non-binary may not feel welcome or comfortable um, or may experience other health issues during these periods of time, including related to their own identities, their bodies, their mental health. And so it really does affect sort of your mindset, your physical health going into this period, um, but also following that period. Thank you for that. Um, and can you give the listeners an overview of gender affirming care within the prenatal health sphere? Sure. So currently, as I mentioned, prenatal care is really framed from the perspective of the patient as, as the woman um, and a cisgendered woman. And so therefore, often it's only affirming the female gender. Um, however, when we think about gender affirming care within this space, I think we really need to think about recognizing gender identity as a spectrum using language differently, for instance, uh, pregnant individual versus pregnant woman, um, use chest feeding rather than breastfeeding, mm -hmm. using preferred pronouns for a patient. All of that is part of this process of affirming gender within, um, within the prenatal health sphere. And when we think about sort of patient-centered care, I think that's really what is what should be the focus, that mm -hmm. all healthcare decisions, all treatment decisions should really be a conversation between the patient and the healthcare provider. And for people who are pregnant, who wish to become pregnant, or who maybe were recently pregnant, gender-affirming care is going to be really a, a really important part of that. And it's going to maybe look different for each person. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, I think healthcare providers really need to make sure that they're educated, they're aware of these dynamics and properly trained in how to engage in this conversation with their patients to really provide, you know, the full spectrum of care that, that patients require. Mm -hmm. And are there any specific resources and support systems for non-binary prenatal and postpartum patients? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's one that is quite frankly, an area of need right now. Um, at this point in time, I would say online support is likely where non-binary persons might find the most support. I know Family Equality has web resources for preparing for pregnancy as a non-binary person, and that is incredibly helpful. Um, you can find that on the web. 
I also have seen several medical professional societies coming out with statements. Um, in fact, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recently released a statement on improving OBGYN care for transgender and non-binary individuals. So there are some resources out there, but I think there's still a lot more work that needs to be done to really create an inclusive environment and shared decision-making for all pregnant people. But I would say that really looking for that support online or within your community um, for, you know, what it is that you're about to, about to embark upon, um, you know, pregnancy is hard enough as it is, let alone doing it in a way where maybe you're not feeling fully understood. Right, right. And I know you mentioned um, some, some already some challenges and barriers for non-binary prenatal patients, other, and postpartum patients. Are there other challenges or, or any kind of what your take is about the the main challenges and barriers that we need to overcome? Yeah, I think there's several, um, both in terms of the education and awareness side for clinicians, but also how do we empower patients to be able to feel comfortable uh, tackling this conversation potentially. Um, some of these patients may not know where to seek or receive care. Um, they may feel because they may seem different than, you know, what what physicians are currently treating in terms of their patient load. They may not feel like they know exactly where to go. Um, some things as simple as how to enter a patient's information into an electronic medical record can be a barrier. Um, for instance, if you're a trans man seeking prenatal care, there's no category for that. The electronic medical record may not be able to even process that that, um, that is care that is appropriate. And so I think little things like that could be um, an easy-ish fix to start the conversation. I also think that the barriers, the research on the barriers to care for these patients is quite limited. And so it would be mm -hmm. great if we could have more insight into that. Um, and then I think the other thing that I think is particularly challenging is some of the mental health issues that are associated at this time for the patient. So isolation, loneliness, feeling like they're not understood, um, you know, making sure that the, the conversation is appropriate between patient and provider, um, but also something like body identity um, can be a challenge. And so I really think awareness um, and preparedness in terms, both on the patient side and clinician side, to be able to engage in these conversations is a huge barrier right now. And not even just the conversation, but then what is the plan and path forward for making sure that um, someone is as healthy as they can be throughout this time period. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Yeah. yeah. So you talk about yeah, the awareness and preparedness. Is that um, part of the some part of the effective strategies to minimize these barriers? And are there other ways we can provide support to non-binary patients? Yeah, I think there's a lot that we can do. Um, that education and awareness piece, I would love to see additional training. I know some healthcare professionals are already engaging in that. I think um, it would be great to be able to make that more widely available. Um, support for patients is really key. So if you have a patient that is non-binary, um, maybe being able to provide resources for them so that they're not looking on their own for that support group. Um, 
I think using appropriate pronouns and helping clinicians understand how to approach that conversation and discuss, you know, healthcare with their patients who might be non-binary is going to be really important. Um, and arming patients with the right questions to ask, ways to approach that conversation as well from their end so that um, it doesn't feel burdensome or like you are providing more information than you mm-hmm. might need to, really approaching it from a place of, okay, we're looking to get you know healthy outcomes both through pregnancy and postpartum um, for the that pregnant individual and baby, and how do we get there and what makes sense, I think is going to be really important. Thank you. And how can non-binary patients best advocate for themselves to receive the support and resources that they need? Yeah, I think it's really important to have the support that you need during this time. So finding your community and support system, but also to be really clear and empowered in your care. And I think this advice really goes to both non-binary or binary individuals, really just sharing your plans, your concerns, your questions right up front, talking about what outcomes you would like to see. Um, And I also would share that, um, and we, we tell all of our communities this, if you're uncomfortable with your clinician, um, you have the right to seek out a different clinician where you do feel comfortable and and Mm -hmm. don't underestimate that as being an important support system for receiving good outcomes and appropriate care for you. Right. Just like you could see a different therapist if you so choose. That doesn't exactly. uh, (laughs) And that's okay. Sometimes it's not the right fit. Right. 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 Um, how can, and how can cisgendered allies advocate for the healthcare rights and needs of non-binary folks? I think we're seeing this as a movement right now across the board when it comes to maternal health. Uh, There's definitely been an evolution of language use um, with many national organizations adopting um, inclusive language surrounding pregnancy. So we are now seeing the use of pregnant people or pregnant individuals throughout medical guidance in education and awareness materials, even federal agencies are doing this. And so I think that really shows a shift in making sure that people feel included in this process. Um, I would say that the goal is to really be um, inclusive and additive in language. So, you know, anyone seeking perinatal care feels welcome and safe and appropriately cared for throughout their journey. Mm -hmm. I think that those who are cisgendered can really engage by using that language, making sure that they're, um, you know, potentially correcting people who aren't using language that is, is now becoming more common and really working to ensure that they're supporting and advocating for these individuals throughout their time. So whether that's through support groups with their own conversations with clinicians and really talking about their experience and making sure that there's an understanding there, it's all going to be really important to be an ally in this process. Thank you. Um, and uh, and then how can primary care providers and OB guides support their binary non-binary patients during their pregnancy journeys? Yeah, I think a lot of this comes back to just really being supportive and non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, we are seeing a movement in terms of language change and greater education and awareness. I do think sometimes it takes quite a while for that guidance to trickle down. So um, engaging with their patients in their journey, um, understanding preferences in terms of both care, but also pronouns and also what 
this journey is going to look like. Being completely up to speed on the changing face of, of all of this, I think is extremely helpful. So um, while there are reasons with respect to this particular issue that a healthcare provider may need to know biological sex at birth, um, there that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use preferred pronouns um, and also treat a patient as they wish to be treated. I think there are unique issues that might arise for folks who are non-binary or, or transgender man that needs to be a part of the conversation. And so greater training, compassion, inclusion, I think all of this should be built into potentially the medical school curriculum, ongoing training, um, ongoing guidance from the national professional medical societies so that it's incorporated into the conversation and something that is sort of um a part of it from the beginning. Right, right, exactly. So uh, you've listed a few a few important items. Yeah, the inclusive language guidance, um, you know, sh- being non-judgmental and showing compassion, supporting individuals and groups, and um, as you said, treating as, uh, as they wish to be treated, which um, goes back to sort of the central tenet of um, good patient care. Um, yeah. Great. Uh, and I'd like to actually uh, pivot to um, the Society for Women's Health Research. I, want, I was wondering if you could discuss some current priorities for um, the organization, kind of if you'd like to sort of present some of the top line current priorities that you're working on. Sure. Um, so thank you for that. We SWHR was founded 30 years ago on this idea that women and historically excluded populations were not being included in clinical research. Um, And so while we have done a good job of making sure that women are better included, I think some of those subpopulations and really looking at some of those historically excluded populations is going to be key all around, you know, when we think about clinical research broadly. For women's health in particular, we also know that, as I mentioned, sort of sex refers to the biological classification and there are biological sex differences in disease and we need to fully understand them to better improve healthcare. So we work to promote um, research in that area. Um, We work to improve women's health across the lifespan um, to kind of comprehensively address both sex and gender as they relate to women's health. So, you know, we mentioned the biology, the biology piece, but also the gender construct and sort of the role traditionally of women as caregivers is really critical um, in terms of the decision-making process in healthcare. And so how do we empower people to be armed with as much information as possible, um, guide them and maybe approaching conversations with their clinicians um, and things like that. I think for sort of healthcare across the lifespan, mm-hmm. we're working to really think about women's health as a continuum versus a certain time in a person's life or um, a certain condition that they might have or a disease state to really make sure that throughout that journey, um, you know, we are working to support women as much as possible. And how how does something like Um, having uterine fibroids impact your fertility, which may impact your pregnancy, which may impact menopause later in life. It's all interconnected, um, but we don't traditionally think about it that way. So we're really working to drive this national conversation um, to think about issues that might traditionally um, affect women, but also those that might disproportionately or differently impact them. So things like migraine, Alzheimer's disease, 
cardiovascular disease, things like that, and sort of how um, how you want to make sure that a person is as healthy as possible. And when we think about the perinatal period, because I think that's where my personal, you know, advocacy journey had began and my work with the high-risk pregnancy docs is really thinking about how do we, if someone chooses to have a baby, what, it, where do they need to be in their healthcare journey to make that as successful as possible? And then what do we learn from that time in pregnancy to make sure that your future health um, is taken care of and that you are armed with the information that you need to be able to be healthy later on in life as well. Right. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for providing that. Um, and, and it sounds like really, really important work. And um, I appreciate your time with us, Katie. We uh, have covered all our questions we have for you today. And I do appreciate you um, discussing this important topic with us. Um, is there anything else you'd like to um, share with our listeners? I would just thank you all for taking on this issue. It's something that we in the women's health space are having a constantly evolving conversation about and making sure that we're approaching this time in life in particular um, mm-hmm. from an inclusive perspective. But I think the more that we know and the, but the better, more open conversations we are all having, the better care can be provided. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Katie. And again, I appreciate your time. Uh, I hope you have a good rest of the week. Thank you. You too. All right. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, led by Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to set content.